invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to try to finish this chapter. Um, it's not really finishing a theme. It really drives itself right into chapter 4, as you saw last week, as we really talked about the bookends of this going into verse 6 of chapter 4 uh, with regard to the um, historical aspects of our salvation um, not necessarily our personal salvation, but our as a the people of God, going back to the preaching of God's word way back in the days of Noah. And then the relationship with those who are already gone, who have already died, uh, that as that there really is no difference, that just as they had to receive Christ and hear the gospel, just as they had to respond to preaching and the proclamation of the word, just as the Holy Spirit led in them, and convicted them, and they needed to respond, so we have to respond in like kind. We who are engaged really in essentially uh, the same process that was there so many years ago. So what is our connection, and what is Christ's connection to all of this? And really the Holy Spirit is the mechanism, is the person that uh, is identified by Peter as the one that draws us back into our our historical roots of what is our ministry. And we think the historical roots of our ministry are the ministry of the apostles, but Peter wants us to take us all the way back that by means of the Holy Spirit, the one who resides in us, really we are connected all the way back to some of the first preachers. And the first preacher he meant, the preacher that he wants to identify as one of the first preachers is Noah, uh, who preached the gospel who preached repentance for 100 years, though no one listened outside of his immediate family, and uh, they were saved. The ones who responded were delivered. That simple, and that's the simplicity of the message of Christ, is that we preach Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended. All of those are presented here. He begins with the crucifixion, but he quickly is going to go to the resurrection, as we're going to see today, and to his presence in heaven that he's gone to heaven in verse 22 at the end of this chapter and so his his death his resurrection and his ascension are all uh, the core of our doctrine that we preach that christ preached and lived again to the uh by the working of the holy spirit we saw the the interaction there you cannot divorce or and really isolate uh, these ministries apart from one another. Uh, we do that in theological circles. We have a whole study called pneumatology, a whole study called Christology, and, and that's somewhat helpful for us to categorize these, but it's also somewhat hurtful for us to categorize these because we begin to think of them as isolated people rather than the three-in-oneness that we are really called to. And, and Peter here really relate, gives that relationship that he was... Uh, put to death by men. He was raised by God, the Spirit, uh, and that this is the same Spirit uh, by which um, preaching was done uh, in former days. Uh, people who are now in prison because they, in, in a place of captivity, because they rejected that preaching, but yet a handful believed. And so we saw that connection we want to take this a little bit further, um, and this brings us into another area that's going to take us a little bit of work to get through, not because 
uh, we're going to manipulate Scripture, but because we have to correlate Scripture. Uh, when we derive practices and theologies from isolated Scriptures, we are always going to become unbalanced. And so, and I've probably seen that all of my ministry as we engage, and, and we're not immune to it. All right? Baptists aren't immune to this. I've seen it in some of our circles, and when you call them out, they get very offended. Uh, and it's like, well, what about this? And so we have our favorite verses that support us uh, seemingly very strongly. And then we have the verses that we have to kind of manipulate a little bit to, or explain them away because they don't agree very well. And uh, I've seen that in eschatology and in the doctrine of end times and, and prophetic teaching. And when you call them out, they get very upset. It's like, oh, and, and everyone does that. So this group has their favorite verses, and then they almost ignore or manipulate the others. Another group has their favorite set, and they ignore those peoples. And then a third group has their favorite set, and they say these are the emphatic ones, and those other ones they almost ignore or manipulate away. And that just can't be the case. Either your, your doctrine has to be inclusive of all of God's word and correlate them all, or it needs to be changed. And that's a frightening thing to say, to hear from your pulpit, is that, well, our doctrine has to be, but it shouldn't be, because it has to be accommodate all of Scripture. And so we want to, but we also recognize that we need to understand the Scriptures, the language that is there, uh, and the, the goal and the context of these passages. And hopefully we already get a good a handle on what is going on in this passage, that Peter is trying to use Christ as an example to us of suffering. He is going back in, and this is not the last time Peter is going to use the example of Noah. He's going to use it again in Second Peter. Uh, it is one of his favorite accounts and draws from it heavily in his writing comparative to others, whereas for Paul he draws heavily from Abraham, uh, but for Peter it's from Noah he draws from. And so when we come to this, he is talking about Christ's suffering. How was it accomplished? He suffered once for sin, the just for the and so that context of helping us recognize that we have an example. And we have more than one example. We have the example of Christ who suffered, sacrificed, and was glorified and had the Spirit of God upon him, equipping, enabling him, empowering him for all of that. And so we have the same access. Therefore, because Christ suffered these things, it wasn't because he was 100% God that he was able to endure these things. It was, he was 100%, he was 100% God, but that's not why he endured those things. He endured those things as being 100% human. Yes, he's a 200% person. And so he's 100% human, and he had within him Holy Spirit enabling him which is exactly what he promised you who believe. I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Comforter, he will indwell you. He will seal you. He will uh, uh, bring to remembrance, illuminate you. Uh, all of these, he'll transform you. He, he will do all these things in your life as he has already done in Christ. That Christ had access to that power. And he says, listen, you're going to have access to that same power. And that's why you're going to do the same miracles I do and even greater ones. 
And so he is the example. How are we going to endure suffering? That's the whole question here. And he goes back to the people, because Peter is really writing this in preparation for the end times, and that's very obvious when he gets later and tells you how the end is going to happen, that it's all going to melt fervent heat. That's Peter explaining that process, that Jesus comes as a thief in the night. That's Peter. We're not going to get to that for a little while, but those are all, in Peter's mind, he is trying to prepare the church to endure to the end which is a common theme in all of the New Testament writers. Endure to the end. He who endures will be saved. And so he wants to give you this, this means of understanding how do you endure suffering uh, to be pleasing to God and to be standing fast when he comes that he will find faith on the earth in your heart. And so he tells us it's through the Holy Spirit. That's the number one example, Jesus Christ. But because people often isolate Jesus and say, well, we can't live up to Jesus' standard because we're not incarnate, we're not sinless, we have another example given to us, and that is Noah. The same spirit that filled Jesus and that convicts in this day is the same spirit that filled Noah, and the gospel is preached, the gospel repentance, which always points to the Messiah, uh, whether futurely or in the past, we are still preaching Christ. So Noah preached um, Christ, uh, Christ preaching through him by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we see that faithful ministry, and it is certain that Noah suffered extensively for those hundred years as a, a, at least of ridicule. Can we at least agree that he'll be ridiculed uh, for building this monstrosity out in the middle of somewhere where there was no water? You're a kook. I mean, that's probably about the nicest thing, right? Are we prepared to be called the kooks of our generation? You guys are nuts. You guys, and they'll make fun of you. And, and uh, that's not really suffering, but that's at least the beginning because all they have to do is isolate you as uh, not being one of them, being weird. And now we can excuse ourselves for maltreating you. So that's how the process works. So once they start to identify you as different, and now it's not very many steps before they have permission to maltreat you in their own mind. And in culture's mind, society's mind. And so we understand that if you want to avoid a culture that goes to maltreatment of a people group that you begin by not allowing them to uh, isolate and identify you as such. So we come to this now, and having been given that example of not only Christ, but of um, Noah, he's going to now translate the events of Noah to our experience. And he does this in verse 20, and, I'm sorry, verse 21. But let's go and read verse 20 because of its connection here. It says, uh, Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine law suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Uh, and there's a lot of questions that through water, from water, in water. Uh, we know the story, right? Did any water, did Noah and his family ever get wet? That's the question. 
No, God called them into the ark before one part of the sky broke open, before one uh, water from the deep broke forth. They were in the ark, preserved. Verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to stop there. I hope to get to verse 22 as well. We've already touched on that a little bit, but we're going to get there. So we started with, in verse 18, with his death. We now see that the focal point of verse 21 is his resurrection. And you see immediately in verse 22 that the next focal point is his ascension. What he is doing is he's developing Christologically the process of, of, of the work of Christ to its completion, to its ascension, and making it related to us. And here he wants to tie in the events of the flood with Christ and with our experience. So he's trying to tie these three together and band them together in our minds so that we can understand that, that, that the strength of this argument, so that we'll stand. <laughs> what does the Bible say? You put three strands together, it's not easily broken. Right? And so you want to make a rope, you don't need to find something really thick. You need to find multiple that aren't that thick, and you band them together, you weave them together, now you have a very strong rope. And so he wants to tie these together for us, the work of Christ, the example of Noah, and our own personal experience. And that's why he draws on this concept of the anti-type. And so this is kind of technical language, and that's okay that it uses in your Bible. Hopefully you look this up and say, what does he mean by anti-type? And there is an entire area of study in theology called typology, where we look at events, individuals, places, uh, where in, in Old Testament and even in the New Testament that are types, that is they are pictures, they are real people, they really happen. We are not going to go into where origin took us and go in to just say, well, they were just made up stories to give us, to give us these principles for us. No, they are really people. Those are real events. Those are real places. So there really was a guy named Moses. There really was a guy named Noah. There really were these catastrophic events. Uh, these places really existed. And, and, our, uh, and that's all demonstrable. We can find that. We can walk around, find these places. So we're not dismissing the reality of the past. We're saying that they become pictures of something uh, called an anti-type that will be in the future. Now, in the study of typology, you need to understand that the type, that is the, the picture, the representation, is not the priority. It's not the highest uh, principle. It, it is the anti-type that it points to that is the higher one. That is, you're taking a lesser and going to a greater. So we have many anti-types of Jesus Christ I'm sorry, we have many types of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Okay, we can find it in the tabernacle and temple where Jesus Christ says, I'm the light of the world. I am the bread that is from heaven. Uh, you know, and, and I'm the sacrifice. 
These are all things that are in the Israeli worship, in the tabernacle. They are the types. They really existed, but they pointed to something greater than themselves. You can read the book of Hebrews, and it talks about these extensively. That Melchizedek is a type. He really was a guy that existed, um, but he wasn't the Savior. He points to Jesus Christ. We have many of those types in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ, that point to his sacrifice. And so we, we have this whole study, and it's a, it's a wonderful study. It's an important study for us to see. Here are the pictures throughout the Old Testament that people of faith understood these are pointing to that. This is looking forward to that, and we are waiting for our redemption. We are waiting for our Messiah. We are waiting for this one. And Moses tells them flat out, I am a type. You think I'm your greatest leader. I'm not. There's going to be a prophet that comes after me that's going to be greater than me. Listen to him when he comes. He just says it flat out. And so to think that the people of Israel didn't understand this principle is wrong because the people of faith did understand that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. We are waiting for our Redeemer. And Isaiah 53 makes it very clear that it was going to be a person that was going to suffer, that was going to be the lamb. And so typology points to that. So what Peter is doing here is is pointing to an anti-type type. And so we are looking at this uh, anti-type, which means that we are going back. To, let's go back to the type. He just finished telling you about the type, and that is that they were saved through water. And so here we find that God comes. And he wants to destroy the world. He looks upon He says there's no one. And then there's one guy out of the entire population of the earth, which numbered in the billions Do not conceive of the earth as being hardly populated during this time. If you look at the lifespan of people, you look at how many children and how many wives they had, and you look at the the, the length of time that is there, and they're living hundreds of years, 900 years, 800 years, 700 years, and several of those, uh, even post-flood, you could add a couple hundred to, or a hundred to each of them. But we find this, and, and so I'm not speaking off the top of my head. Um, this is a huge population of the earth by this point, and one guy, one guy, God says, for that one man. And that becomes a type, doesn't it? Because we're looking for that one man who is perfect, Jesus Christ. So Noah becomes a type of Christ. That there's going to be one redeemer. So for the sake of this one, God says, okay, uh, for your sake, I'm going to save you, but I'm going to destroy everyone else. And so you start building. It's going to take you some time. Here's the schematic. Get busy. Uh, And uh, Noah starts preaching, and his sons listen. Apparently their wives and his wife are on board with him, which is really exciting. That makes it a lot easier to build. Uh, Not impossible. Could have done it by himself. Might take an extra couple hundred years, but... Took 100 years with the eight of them going at it. And, but he's preaching this whole time, the Bible tells us. And no one's listening. And then comes the flood. And they are preserved. 
And Peter uses the concept of through water, and, and there's a reason that they are they, that while the earth is flooded over the whole face of the earth, that here's this one boat, these eight individuals uh, that are preserving the human race. And now, he wants to take us from that type. He's talking about these people in water. He's going to use that as a type, as a picture. Just as Noah becomes a picture of Christ, and we made that connection here. He's made it earlier uh, to the one sacrifice, the one worthy. Remember, the type is lesser than the anti-type, so now we're going to go from a lesser, the water of the flood, to something greater, something more important than the eight floating in a boat in the flooded earth. Remember, the anti-type is greater than the type. So this leads us to the anti-type. He says the anti-type, which is our redemption, um, and he points to baptism, and because of some concern, he puts, we put it in parenthetical statement here. It's not necessarily a parenthetical statement in his original writing, but we put it there. Um, the Greek tells us it is pretty much parenthetical. Uh, he wants to define and help us understand what he means by baptism. So this is not added by uh, people later on. This is Peter's writing. This is not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. This is his definition of baptism. The answer of a good conscience toward God. So let's go back to the type before we really get into the anti-type. By the time we have Noah and his family spending this pretty lengthy time, probably well over a year, uh, on this boat in the water uh, before they step out. And remember, they're going to step out on dry ground. And so this is really picturing the not only the destructive elements of that, because what the water that they are floating in is that which destroyed all the rest of life. Please recognize that. And that's going to be really important to the anti-type. What does this water represent? It represents God's judgment. The preservation that is there is going to be at the other end when they are going to walk out onto dry ground because the water is receded and now you have the earth as we kind of know it today, a very different earth than pre-flood, very obviously. And so we have now taking that and bringing it into the anti-type of baptism. And he makes it very clear that the baptismal waters, we are not talking about the capacity of water to wash you. Because the water isn't really representing washing. That's not what it's there. It's not representing cleansing you in any way, shape, or form. That is not what the water is representing. If you go back to the type, you understand what the water represents. The water represents the judgment of God on men. And so when we talk about water baptism, what do we usually refer to it as? As a watery grave. We refer to it as a watery grave. The grave is God's judgment on our sin. Please put that in context. The water is not there to wash our sins away. What can wash away our sins? Nothing. You guys know the song, right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Is the blood, is the life in the blood that washes us. 
And so what Peter tries to do, he says, I'm not talking about the capacity of water to wash away anything. That is not what water represents in the antitype, because that's not what it represented in the type. The water was the judgment of God. So why in the world am I getting in this tank of water and going to be submerged in it and then be brought out of it because we are representing what Christ has done for us specifically in his death and resurrection. He has already mentioned the death of Christ and then he's going to talk about the resurrection at the end of this verse. We are very specifically and most emphatically declaring the resurrection more so than the death. And so we have this watery grave, not that water is there to wash us, but water is rather there representing the judgment of our sin. That I trust in Jesus Christ, and I now have this right relationship with God, and so I want to communicate something to you, and that is that the judgment I deserve, Christ took for me. And I identify myself with his death, with his burial, and his resurrection. That's what I trust in. And so I'm going to put my body in this water representing a grave. The water represents the judgment of God. I'm going to have myself put down into it representing death and raised again. The Bible says to newness of life. They have a new earth after you get out of the water. And the whole communication here is not a washing away of anything. Peter makes it very clear here that we're not talking about the washing. Now, why is this so important to him? And by the way, um, what I'm telling you is nothing new. You know, one of the earliest church fathers, Ambrose, has a very popular, well-known statement that the baptism of the unregenerate doesn't clean them, it just pollutes the water. Okay, you're just getting the water dirty. You're not really helping them get clean. You're polluting the concept of baptism by baptizing the unregenerate. They have to have new life if they're going to be able to participate because the water does not represent washing. It represents judgment. You're saying, the judgment I deserve, Christ took for me. And he got victory over that. And I claim that victory for me. That's why my body going into this water and I'm coming out because I'm claiming the victory of the resurrection in my life. Not only the association with the death of Christ to cover sin, yes, but the victory of the resurrection in my life is what we're really emphatically trying to state. Now, why does Peter have to communicate this uh, and have this parenthetical statement? because of what baptism had become in some of the sects of the Jews, particularly the Essenes. The Essenes, had, and if you go to their communities, even today in the ruins, and there's plenty of them around the Dead Sea, uh, in the southern part, you can go to some of the Essene communities. Uh, they uh, have um, just recently, our last visit, they had just uh, excavated and found Magdala, uh, Mary of Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. They found Mag Magdala. They found that community that said it wasn't there, and then it was. Now it is, and and we find all these tanks. And remember that Luke seeks to communicate to Theophilus in his writing that 
These, these Jews are washing all the time. Well, the Essene community uh, participated in this. And so when they were copying scripture, every time they got to the name of God, is what the legend says, they would put down their pen, go into one of these tanks, have a, get baptized, and then come out and write that word. Every time they came to the name of God. And they were constantly having these huge tanks of water there to go down into and come up out of so they could be cleansed. And, and so the Essene community and, and many of those had this concept that was very uh, cultural. And Peter here is saying something very different. And so we have John the Baptist show up on the scene. And he's calling you to a baptism not for cleansing but of repentance. Repent and be baptized. And of course, Peter, or Jesus is going to say the same thing. Repent uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and baptized. Be baptized. What are you communicating? I, well, it's something different. This is very different than what the Essenes were practicing. And that's been lost. And in fact, many today, when we were last trip into Israel, uh, our tour guide, he, was, he, just, he did the opposite. We have groups out there that overemphasize baptism as the as your salvation, which we're going to get to here next. And in, but he went the other direction, that, well, you just, you just go get washed for any reason you want. And he said that. You know, oh, if you want to go down the Jordan River and we're going to do this baptism, oh, baptism means a washing. So if you don't go down there and get washed, that's fine. So we make it either too important or we make it light of it, and it's nothing. Well, the Essenes practice it as a washing. Peter says, I'm not talking about a washing. He has to emphatically state that. He has to because of people in the Jewish community that associated baptism with the ceremonial washing. He says, no, the antitype is, goes back to the flood. The water doesn't represent washing. The water represents the grave. It is God's judgment the water represents, that we are saved from, that Christ died for us, and so we are going into it, and then, so he tells you what it is not, very purposefully, because he knows his community, he knows his audience, Peter primarily is writing to Jewish people, unlike Paul's writing, so he knows who he's writing to, he knows his audience, he knows what they're going to think baptism means, and he says, no, I'm not talking about baptism as a matter of washing, and that's why he has gone back to the flood that the flood waters are what you are representing in the waters of baptism, and that is God's judgment. Everyone understood the water was God's judgment, not the salvation. The salvation for Noah was the boat, right? (laughs) And so um, the water was the judgment. So we're in the baptismal waters representing the watery grave because the the wages of sin is death. The grave is, is what we gain victory over. So we go down into that grave, we come up out of the grave, and it is the last part that is the greatest part. We are so concerned about making sure you go all the way down in, and there's reason why we do immersion, uh, but we forget that the most important part is you came up out of it. That is the part that gets glorious. That's the part that we are emphatically about, is that we're representing the resurrection. So, he adds in this parenthetical phrase another concept. 
Well, if it's not a washing, what is it? It is the answer of a good conscience toward God. It is a response. It means that before you go into those baptismal waters, you already have a good conscience. Please understand that. It is the answer of a good conscience is baptism. Baptism isn't getting a good conscience. It is when you have one, and now you are answering. Answering out loud. It is a declaration. It is the answer of a good conscience. Your salvation is a very private matter. It happens in your heart. You must believe in your heart that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. You must believe that in your heart. It is a very private, very personal commitment you make that is in the secret places. You have to commit your life to Christ. You're giving yourself over. You're surrendering. You are repenting. Yes, you're confessing sin. All of that is necessary. Repentance is a requirement, that confession. But it's ultimately, you are in your mind, in your heart. In, in, your heart is your will, not your feelings. In your will, you're surrendering your life to Christ. I'm not going to try to do it my way. I'm going to do it your way. You are the one who died for me. I can't get rid of any of my sin myself, no matter how good I try to be. I can't. God doesn't waste in this way. Why is it this way? I can't measure up to your standard of perfection. I have to trust in Jesus Christ. That is the means by which we receive Christ. It is very private. It happens in your heart, in your conscience, in your mind. But if it stays there, there's something wrong. Because the Bible says, not only that you believe it in your heart, but that you confess it with your mouth. This is Romans 10. Because with the mouth, confession is made. That what is going on inside of me has to come out of me. James tells us that your words come out of what's going on inside. It's the overflow of your spirit, of your heart. And that's why you can't have, have good and evil coming out of the same mouth. You know, if, if the source is good, what comes out of it should be good. If the source is evil, we expect what comes out of it is evil. And so we find that if I've given my heart to Christ, if I have experienced his cleansing of his shed blood, if I have, have uh, he is now my Savior and, and my Lord, my Master, he is the one I'm going to live for, then it's going to come out. And what does it mean to come out? It means you're going to declare it. You're going to show it. You're going to speak it. You're going to give an answer. You're going to tell people. One of the mechanisms for telling people that something has changed in your life internally is baptism. And that's what baptism was originally before the Essenes made it this weird washing ritual. It was to communicate, and it was really used for proselytes, for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. They would get circumcised, but that's not all they would do. They would be baptized in living water. And to, to communicate their uh, transition from being Gentile in their uh, belief system being Jewish. So they had the circumcising, yes, but they also had that. And so that's the origin of it, it was part of the process of proselytizing from Gentile, Gentiles to Jews. And, but it, the Essenes made it this weird washing ritual. 
and that kind of took on because, you know, but uh, John the Baptist pulls us back to the original concept, repent, and then you get baptized saying, I am want to identify with this group looking for the Messiah. It's identification. And so here's the answer of a good conscience. You already have a good conscience because you privately, personally, in your heart, in your mind, in your, in your, in your conscience, you've, you've dealt with these things with God, you've accepted it, and, and you can do that uh, anywhere, anytime. Uh, you don't have to be with someone. You don't, there's not a special prayer you have to pray. There, that's never listed in Scripture. You have to believe it in your heart. But then, if you keep it to yourself, there's something wrong with that. Because when God has done so much for you, you want to answer. So God makes a provision. Our response is by faith to trust in him. <laughs> he cleanses us, saves us. What's your answer now? What's the answer? He gave you a good conscience. He cleared you of your sin, forgave you of all that. What's your answer to what he has done for you after you express faith in his provision? This is called a relationship. Communication. What's your answer? Well, what God has asked you to do is to be baptized. He's commanded it. This is the first answer. The first is that public declaration, I am a different person because of what Christ has already done in my life. I have a clear conscience before God, not based upon my goodness, but upon the righteousness of Christ. And I want you to know it. I'm giving an answer. I make a public statement. It is the answer of a good conscience toward God. I am right with God. That happened in your conscience. You can say, well, that's great. Well, okay, well, when did that happen? Well, it didn't happen when you were a baby. It didn't happen. Because you didn't understand no Christ. In, in most of the... Uh, Radical churches, radical, sounds like they're really wild. Um, they're just Baptists, Anabaptists, they were called radicals. Um, not the reformers, but the radicals, um, all held to that. In fact, they said not until you're of age can you, be, can you participate in believer's baptism. And by of age, they didn't mean 18. Uh, typically, it was between 12 and 14, somewhere in there. 12 years old. You can give an answer. because Now you can speak for yourself of who you want to be. We don't think 12-year-olds make those decisions, but they do. That's when, really when they start deciding who they're going to be. Independent of mom and dad, they're starting to decide, who am I going to be, junior high? No, they don't call it that. Middle school. Middle school is the most dangerous time in a child's life, undirected. For a sixth grader going to school and thinking an eighth grader is cool is the most dangerous environment they could ever be in. Because eighth graders know nothing. But that's when they start formulating who they're going to be. And so for the radicals, historically, they would not baptize anyone until they're 12. 13, 14, somewhere in there. Because they said they have to be capable of giving an answer of making a declaration of their faith and making that public 
not under the pressure of mom and dad, not under the pressure of the church or the state, but on their own that they want to stand and say, this is who I am, and I want everyone to know it. Does that mean they weren't saved until that day? That's not what he's communicating here. He's saying this is the answer of a right conscience. And because he's tying it back to the flood, remember we talked about the preaching last week, now we move into the actual flood events. So we talked about the 100 years prior to the flood, now we're talking about the flood events itself. He says this is the antitype. A clear conscience, the answer of a clear conscience. And for Peter, there was no, there was, and, and you read it. Uh, obviously in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, when they say, they're cut to the heart all after his first sermon, they say, what should we do to be, and, and he says, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for forgiveness of sins. In Peter's mind, he could not disassociate, repent, and be baptized. Because... If you believe it in your heart, you're going to confess it with your mouth. You can't have one without having a desire to do the other. And that was true for all the early church. That you cannot, that it was inconceivable then that you would do this privately and not have some public statement made about it very, very quickly. And so, yes, most often they got saved and baptized the same day. They didn't even wait till the Lord's Day. They didn't wait till it could be arranged. They just marched down to the river, the lake, the stream, wherever it was, and I made a new commitment in my life. And yes, they had the same kinds of problems we have with misunderstanding what baptism is. The Essenes had muddied those waters. <laughs> I think that's funny. I don't know. They think it's for washing, but it's muddied. And I'm just quoting Ambrose there, right? They just muddied those waters with misinformation about what baptism was. They had the same problems we have today. But they didn't want to stop that association. And so some have gone too far and said, now they have, you're not saved until you're baptized. Not true. The baptism is the answer of a good conscience. If you go to Acts chapter 2, what are they your son? All those who gladly received his word were baptized. So that was the condition. Everyone understood that. You had to gladly accept, which means you were glad to repent. Because that's what he said, repent and be baptized. Because they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They were broken. They wanted to know what to do with their sin. They had murdered the Messiah. You took him with cruel hands and crucified him. God raised him from the dead. That was the message that day. And they understood they murdered their own Messiah. And they were convicted and they were sorry and they were, what do we do? We can't undo it. He says, repent. Get it right. And they were glad to receive that. It's interesting that he waited until they were sorry before he told them to repent. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Romans. And so, when they were cut to the heart and sorry, he says, okay, repent, turn, your, turn, turn to God. And now be baptized. And those who gladly received his word, that message of the cross of Jesus Christ, were baptized. So yes, they are connected very strongly in Peter's mind and his writing and his preaching um, because of who he's communicating with. 
But do not think that somehow that that was necessary for salvation. In fact, we know that there was many who accepted Christ our Savior and never got a chance to be baptized, including a thief on a cross. Which takes us to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I should not have given announcements again today. I have too much stuff. And again, 1 Corinthians 15 is in the middle of Paul's lengthy argument about the necessity of the resurrection. Do you see it again? The whole focus of this entire portion of Corinthians is about the resurrection. If we don't believe in the resurrection, we're miserable people. And he goes on and on and on and on. Okay, so this is a lengthy passage about the resurrection. We're going to jump in the middle of it. And in verse uh, 29 of chapter 15... And it says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? And he goes on and on and says, essentially, listen, uh, if there's no resurrection, uh, if this life is all there is, and then you either, there's, there's not a resurrection coming, then why are we believe this, do this, do this, do this. And one of the things he lists is why do we baptize for the dead? We're not taking dead corpses and baptizing them. Why are we baptizing for the dead? And it precisely answers the question, what about the people who accepted Christ as Savior and before they could get baptized, died? on a cross, in an arena, at the hands of the Jews. What about them? They didn't get to give the answer for what was happening in their heart. What do we do? And so the practice was initiated that based upon their testimony that though they could not get to the baptismal waters, we who were around them heard that they had received Christ and so now we are going to give for them the answer of their conscience that they received Christ. It is not baptizing like the Mormons do and you go through your whole history and you get baptized to save them, to get them out of, out of one part of heaven into another part of heaven. Again, we have perverted it because we don't recognize the whole passage is about the resurrection. Just because someone has fallen asleep, has died, is not the end of their existence, is it? It's not the end of their testimony. I like to believe, <laughs> if it's possible, I don't know that, it, I, I wasn't there, so I don't know how this was done. I would love to believe that this was in place of or as part of their funeral service. So-and-so died, but the testimony is that they accepted Christ, and before they could be baptized, they were arrested, they were murdered, they were, they were slaughtered, but they made a profession, so we're going to do this as part of their funeral service. Or at least sometime, when it's appropriate, that we're going to have someone to represent them and to Declare their answer. Be their proxy in the anti-type because the anti-type was that important to them. And so we have people who are, baptism doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Well, it mattered to the early church. This is your answer of your clear conscience. 
that you are right with God. And you didn't get a chance to provide that. And we know you would have if given the chance. We believe you would have. And so we have that as a testimony so you can be numbered among those who declared Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that's what baptism is, a declaration that Jesus Christ is my Savior. It is your answer to God's wondrous work of cleansing your conscience. Because you, by faith, trusted in his provision. And so I refuse to diminish its importance, but nor do I want to exalt it to the point that it is a washing event instead of an answer event, a declaration event. Both of those extremes are error. We should hold this as an important thing, as part of my Christian experience, we refer to it as the first act of obedience. You have made an internal commitment to be an obedient believer, and Christ says, okay, you want to obey me? Get baptized. Public. Go. Let's see. Make it public. And Paul communicates this in Romans 10. That Now, he wasn't a huge one in baptism, as big as Peter, Remember in Corinth, he says, I didn't baptize hardly any of you. You know, I baptized a few of you. Um, But that's not my, I wasn't really sent to be baptized people. I was sent to preach the gospel, which if baptism is necessary for salvation, that seems an odd thing for the Apostle Paul to say. But he gets down and he says, listen, you should have a confession with your mouth. Not just a belief in your heart. You keep this thing private, um, you're in trouble. What did Jesus say? If you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my Father. You confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. What is that confession? It's not only with your mouth, it is with your life. That, uh, and God says baptism is the way, and we have this command, uh, be made his disciple, be baptized, and be taught. It's not the other way around. It's not be taught or, or believe, be taught, and then be baptized. And so we have this calling, and we do not apologize for it. It is clear from Scripture that it was of critical importance to the church in their practice, not particularly among the Jews, certainly, but also, as we see here in Corinth, that it was so important, they said, if someone dies without being able to do this, we're going to do it for them, on their behalf, in proxy. Well, if you cease to exist when you die, there's no reason for that, and so Paul says, listen, we believe in the resurrection of the dead, which means we want these people's testimony to be intact, that they did give the answer, they just weren't able to. Now, does that mean that everyone who's been baptized is going to heaven? No. 
Because there are those that go into the waters without a good conscience toward God who haven't received the power of the resurrection in their life. And these are lost. For they trust in their own actions rather than in the work of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. And so we continue to practice a very odd thing, not because it's a ritual, because it is the command of God. In fact, if anything, we want to avoid the ritualization of it. We want to make it substantive and restore to it what is involved. So we are called to this. And the question is, do we obey this or do we obey our preferences? Are, do others teach other things? Yes. People teach baptismal regeneration on many levels, whether it be through infant baptism, whether it be through uh, even uh, those that believe, you, well, you're not really saved until you get baptized. Well, that's obviously not the case. Otherwise, why would you have baptism for the dead? They are saved. They have a right conscience before God. And so we have it that we get to participate in something greater than Noah and the flood. Put your baptism in that perspective. It is the antitype of Noah and the flood. Remember, the antitype is greater, the type is lesser. You think Noah getting saved from, through the flood is a big deal? Wow, what would it be like to be Noah be a lot of hard work for a hundred years. And then a lot of hard work afterwards. Yeah, float around a thing with your family and a whole bunch of critters for a year and a half. So then you gotta start all over and you're gonna make mistakes. But we think, oh, that's a big event, that's a big thing. No, that's the little thing. The big event is your baptism. That's the antitype. It's greater. It's greater than Noah and the flood is when one soul comes to Christ and wants to tell everybody by baptism. That's the power of the antitype. Let us understand the water is God's judgment, not his cleansing. The cleansing is the blood. Let us understand that the focus of baptism is the resurrection. This is what we exalt. This is what we are emphatic about, is that we're claiming the victory of the resurrection as our own. I am a new person in Christ. This is the answer to what God has done for us by clearing our conscience. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this truth today, for this principle here, Lord, we want to live in obedience to your word and to conform ourselves and our teaching to it. And Lord, we pray that we might uh, be careful in this area to preserve what you have instructed the church in. And to me very clearly here, 
And while we see it being perverted in many different directions throughout history, we thank you for your word before us, that we have uh, it explained to us. Lord, we thank you so much for your resurrection, for that power that is made available to us to gain victory over sin and death. Where death is your sting, it is gone. The judgment of God is no longer overshadowing us. That We have been saved. But we thank you for a good conscience towards you, that we are your children. Help us to walk in the light as you have called us. In Christ Jesus' name. Amen.